What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. This is the final part of my interview with Julian Clark, editor of District 9. We're going to be talking about Peter Jackson, working with effects, and much, much more. But before we dive in, Josh Apter from Manhattan Edit Workshop has a few words about the upcoming Edit Fest. Hey, this is Josh from Manhattan Edit Workshop reminding you that American Cinema Editors is bringing Edit Fest back to New York June 11th and 12th. Meet the editors of Avatar, Precious, Manhattan, Sex in the City, The Wrestler, Pirates of the Caribbean, and many, many more. Check it out and register at editfestny.com. See you there. Thanks to Josh for sending us that. And remember that Art of the Guillotine will be at the Edit Fest this year, documenting and recording the event. If you're in the New York area and want to grab a pint, just fire us an email at info at And now, on with the show. In scenes where the aliens and the humans were talking, uh, there's always that shot-reverse shot between the actors and the aliens. How did you approach cutting these scenes when the aliens may simply just be stand-ins, but also because they're speaking a whole other language? Okay, well, let's, we'll deal, deal with the language thing afterwards. <laughs> I always lose track of this part two of the question. I guess, well, cutting the alien performances were actually, it was actually relatively straightforward. Uh, the original thinking was, you know, that we're gonna basically have Charlto, who plays Vickis, basically perform there with, you know, uh, an actor playing the aliens. And then we, you know, and then we do a take where he had basically played a nothing, and kind of try to do the same thing again. And that, you know, in, in the empty spot, empty part of the plate, you would put the alien. Mm -hmm. But of course, every time he performed with another actor there playing the alien, his performance was like that much better. And we also found the animation would be better because the animation started from scratch, that was all keyframed, would just often be a little bit more cartoonish. If they started from a kind of uh, real human performance though it needed to be alienized, it would have a kind of, uh, more of a kind of earthy, authentic kind of quality and not be, not be cartoonish. So we ended up basically shooting all this kind of stuff with a human performer there. Of course, this human performer is in like a gray motion capture suit on stilts, so they look ridiculous. But, you know, Jason Cope, who played most of the aliens, he's a, he's a really good performer. And so you would still, you would get an emotion coming from the performance, so you would you would have something to work with. And you'd, you'd still have to kind of cross your fingers that I hope the animation is going to kind of sell this scene. And you can't really know, you know, you can't really know until you get it. But you can kind of feel like, okay, yeah, I can feel that the beats of the scene are playing out and that the emotions are there and that the rhythm is right. Uh, because you have a performer there, a performer in a ridiculous costume, but, you know. Performer nonetheless. A performer nonetheless. <laughs> And then in terms of the whole language issue, that was really interesting. I mean, we, you know, basically the alien performer is speaking English back to Vickis. And he'd also often be kind of like, you know, kind of be speaking in various kind of like South African dialects and slang and stuff like that. And of course, when you see the final version, it's nothing like that. But what was really interesting is because he was kind of riffing on these sort of various sort of South African personalities as, as an alien, you would kind of, you know, Charlto who played Vickis, would have something to kind of improvise against that was very specific to South Africa. And so you would kind of get things out of Charlto's performance because he is playing off this alien character kind of speaking English. And then, you know, once we were kind of doing the, doing the final sound work, you know, we would, you know, basically make it be this alien language and we could rewrite the subtitles to be whatever we want. So that was also an incredibly useful thing in terms of like being able to kind of 
sort of shift certain meanings and scenes and stuff like that, that we could basically have the aliens say whatever we wanted, uh, even after we'd already shot it. Don't have that freedom with human actors, mm -hmm. you know? You have to cut to an off-screen line or something like that, you know, cut to their back of their head and put it in a different line or something. So that was a very useful device for us. Now, I'd heard that the original story strayed from the script, or sorry, the final film strayed from the script a bit. How did the broader structure of the final cut come together? What elements did you use to keep an engaging story intact? Partly it was just like, I guess, when we actually sort of shot the thing, it just became too big and too unwieldy, and there was too many different kind of tangents. And so partly it was just kind of like making it, making it simpler, kind of having less characters, having kind of less digressions. So a lot of it was just omission and then just sort of finding clever ways to kind of abbreviate things like there was multiple days of evictions at first and then we just had one day, we kind of folded it all down into one day. And then originally we had, you know, M and U had a kind of variety of goals for the aliens technology and then we kind of reduced it being about the weapons which really focused on kind of wanting them to capture Charlto. So it was really just kind of focusing these things and then sometimes the improv, improv would lead us in a new direction and kind of create a new idea and sometimes the new idea was like a good one. And so just kind of like being open to kind of things, things evolving a little bit. Now you mentioned that there'd be ad-libbing and Vickis is a pretty new actor, like this is his first major film. How did you approach cutting his work, especially when he ad-libbed a lot? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it was an incredible performance. And so, you know, I, I don't think it, I, it actually was remarkable how well it worked. I mean, he would improv a lot, he would change up the dialogue and change up the beats, but he'd be very careful to hit like the plot point you needed to hit. And often he would kind of keep the same blocking. So it wasn't like you'd always find yourself in these sort of kind of continuity headaches where he kind of like characters in a sort of an entirely different part, you know, mm -hmm. different eyeline or different part of a room. He was somewhat consistent in that regard. And then I was also very kind of specific that when we kind of shot the stuff that was going to kind of, you know, kind of uh, stray a bit, that we should do it with, you know, two cameras. So you'd have one on him and one on the alien, or a wide on him and a close on him. And then this just gave us a lot more latitude to kind of have material to kind of stitch together where sort of the, maybe the blocking kind of wandered take to take. I think it maybe would have been a much bigger headache if we'd been trying to go like one camera in those situations. Vickis does a slow transition to becoming an alien. Did this limit your, your timeline? For instance, if, if you needed to shift something and it was shot on set with him more alien versus less alien, how did this affect your cutting? Yeah, well, I mean, there is, there's, I mean, I think if, if you're, a, if you have a Hawkeye, you can sort of notice that there are maybe a few little progressions that maybe come and go, you know, on his hand or something like that. So, I mean, there were certain kind of continuity things that we just kind of like went like, well, some person who watched this film a zillion times might like notice this, but mm -hmm. there are a few things where we cheated the timeline and kind of created a potential subtle continuity problem. But you know, like you kind of, you just have to make these calls about like what are the things you can kind of get away with. Certainly, I think there was very few times where we go, well, it would be dramatically adv advantageous to move this here, but we're not going to do it because create some sort of, you know, uh, continuity issue with Vickis. Usually we just found a way to make it work and most of the time I think it flies under the radar. This is your first major effects project. How did you approach cutting such effects heavy scenes? The alien stuff was straightforward. The hard part of it was still we were on a, a limited budget so it was really kind of finding ways to keep your shot count low. We couldn't just go like, okay, this scene we're gonna have 30 aliens and this scene we're gonna have 40 aliens. It was like we had to kind of pick where we could have alien group shots 
you know, and kind of only do that a few times. And then in the same thing where it's like, you know, when you're cutting a sort of a scene with Vickis and Christopher Johnson, he's, you know, we were trying to make it dramatic, but we still had to kind of keep an eye, uh, sort of an eye to sort of keeping our, our, our kind of, you know, our, our number of shots kind of limited, make sure you really need something so that we, you know, we wouldn't go horrendously over budget. And so that was a sort of general challenge for the piece. And then the, uh, the sort of more specific kind of challenge was the big battle scene in the end, which I haven't done a lot of big battle scenes. And what was really hard was the exosuit. Because it's not human scale, we couldn't really do the same thing that we were doing with the aliens, where you'd have a human stand-in. It was basically just, you know, anything to do with the robot was an empty shot. So, you know, it would be like soldiers shooting at nothing, or in the singles on the exosuit, it would be like, you know, just basically just a shot of shacks or a panning shot on shacks where eventually the robot would go into. And so you would be trying to like stitch together, tell this story, make this dynamic battle scene, but you had very little information to go on in terms of the robot. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to make sort of, you know, pacing decisions and shot decisions, but your subject's not there. Mm -hmm. So the, yeah, so the whole thing is very, you know, very Jedi kind of like making these decisions based on very little info. And uh, it gave me just a huge amount of respect for editors who work on these big effects movies, uh, especially if, like us, they're working without a lot of previs. You know, you get kind of spoiled working with actual actors mm -hmm. making a decision based on things that are in the shot. Making decisions based on things that are not in the shot, that's really hard. Yeah. And, you know, a huge amount of expense is then spent on those shots, so you want to be very confident in your decisions. So what would you tell uh, students who are wanting to get into effects editing? Well, I mean, I guess a few things I learned was uh, it was a lot better to make the shot a bit too long than a bit too short. I mean, I, I perhaps the producers would disagree because you know you you know the lot the shot that's a bit too long costs more money. But uh, basically, if you make a short too shot and uh, you then decide it doesn't work, you have to start from scratch, and that's a lot of wasted money. But if a shot's too long, you can always cut it shorter. So that was definitely learning something in terms of padding your shots a bit. Mm -hmm. And also when you're kind of working on these things that have nothing in them, like the exosuit, your inclination is to cut it really short because it's boring, it's an empty shot. But then eventually when a killer robot is in there, <laughs> guns blazing, it won't be boring and maybe two seconds is now suddenly too short, you know? So it's mm -hmm. like, uh, so that was definitely kind of like learning to be kind of a bit conservative and kind of like go for a kind of a longer, longer shots, even though maybe your instinct is like cut, 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 cut when, when they're empty plates. And then another trick I kind of learned, which I don't know if it actually saved money, but it basically, you know, we had all these concerns about shot counts. So what we would do is, you know, when we used the same angle several times in a given sequence with aliens or with the exosuit, we would essentially like link all those plates into one shot with a small little adjoining piece in between. So essentially it would become like a master. So you would have one long effect shot that you would then cut into several places. And you know, I, I'd have to go over the effects budget. <laughs> in theory, this costs less because they actually charge you less for one long shot than for three short ones. If it doesn't, it still looks better on paper because you know, they often do these estimates based on shot count. So you know, uh, it was definitely, you know, that was sort of something that we did at a few points to kind of like bring our shot count down. Vickis is a very, uh, we're able to connect to him throughout the movie and then towards the end, when we're starting to sympathize for him and feel his needs and what have you, he all of a sudden steals the spaceship from the aliens. Was there a worry that you would lose audience at this moment? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think there was that it did cross our minds, and, and I have like heard, or I think I read somewhere that you know a few people kind of being bothered by that moment. But I mean, it's like he's a complicated character, right? And you know, he's he's very unheroic in the beginning, and then he gets kind of forced into a situation where he kind of makes a kind of an arrangement with an alien, mm -hmm. and then by the end, you know, he's really kind of on the side of the aliens. But it's a kind of it's a process, right? So he's not quite there yet at that point. And I think what we, you know, what none of us wanted, uh, who were working on it, was it to feel like, you know, you kind of got to a point in the movie where you could kind of see where it was going to go, you know, and kind of like, okay, well, he's on the side of the aliens now, and I was like, you know, so that's what I really liked about that was sort of like, it sort of was another kind of, you know, it feels uh, motivated by the character, but it kind of sends the plot off in another direction you don't necessarily see coming. Now, at the Canadian Cinema Editors talk that you did. Um, you mentioned that Neil wasn't in the editing room as much, uh, or over your shoulder as much as other directors. How did this affect your editing relationship with him? Yeah, well, I mean, Neil is very hands-on, and I think on a movie with less effects, he probably would have been in the, the edit suite every day. But we had this very small team kind of working on this in post, besides for the legions of effects people. And so it was really like, you know, I would be grinding away at various kind of structure, pace, you know, problems and wading through material. And, uh, and Neil would be going to like endless numbers of effects meetings, kind of like, you know, giving notes on the alien model and stuff like that, you know, and then we'd kind of meet up and kind of catch up on kind of what stuff was happening. And so, you know, yeah, he was, he was very hands-on, but it was just like, we were such a small team sort of spread over this quite ambitious movie that, you know, he just didn't have the time to kind of like sit in the edit suite a lot of the time. The audience is also allowed to connect emotionally to the prawns in the movie. Uh, how is this done via the story structure and post? Well, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, Christopher Johnson and his, uh, his child, little CJ, I mean, I think they're really like the key, obviously, in terms of like humanizing or whatever, making the, making the aliens sympathetic. So, you know, we get those scenes on early on and you kind of show that Christopher Johnson is this sort of different kind of alien. So, I mean, obviously that is key. And obviously all the kind of suffering that is being subjected to the aliens, it's hard, you know, as kind of gruesome as they are, it's still hard to not feel kind of bad for them as they're being exploited. We're quite sadistic in the beginning towards the mm -hmm. aliens. So I think that kind of helps as well. And, uh, and then in terms of how the alien was actually modeled, you know, I think Neil was very careful to kind of have them kind of straddle kind of monster and sort of something that you could kind of sympathize mm -hmm. with. So they are kind of gruesome and, and alien, but then, you know, they have these sort of kind of, you know, especially CJ has these kind of rounder eyes that are, you know, you kind of something that you can kind of sympathize with. We don't go quite as kind of extreme as the Navi or whatever, like mm -hmm. they don't have breasts and that stuff. Uh, but, you know, there are kind of details that we put into modeling the aliens that I think that were kind of like meant to kind of give you a sort of a way in, not make them completely something that's totally foreign, you know, something that has a sympathetic quality to it. Now, what was it like working with Peter Jackson as a producer? Peter was, yeah, he was he was really great. I mean, I think he was really excited by the project, actually, because, you know, he comes out of these kind of crazy genre projects and maybe would secretly like to return to them. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I think he was really excited to be doing this crazy sci-fi kind of gory movie with the kind of sort of twisted sense of humor so you know I think he was really excited by that and and very supportive of Neil's vision so yeah we had you know and his name carries a lot of weight so there was a lot of resources and kind of things that could kind of be used to kind of help the movie 
uh, that Jackson could bring to it. And then, you know, it was this, this sort of immense sort of process kind of structuring and making this movie the kind of fast-paced kind of entertaining thing it is now. And Jackson is a sort of expert at making popcorn films. So he really kind of brought a real working knowledge to kind of like what maybe it would take to kind of make this movie like, uh, you know, be, the, be that kind of film. Now, you started your career editing in Canada. Canada is notorious for tight budgets and tight timelines. How do you think editing in Canada and the experience there has helped you with something like District 9? Well, I mean, there's obviously like there's a kind of like a, a, a sort of a, a massive light year difference between working on a movie like District 9 and working on a you know, million dollar independent that goes to film festivals that's a character drama. But at the same time, there was a lot of limitations on both. Like, District 9 essentially was kind of like, had a sort of $80 million aspiration on a $30 million budget. And a lot of the kind of, you know, kind of million dollar films I've worked on have, you know, had a sort of, you know, whatever, a $10 million aspiration on a million dollar budget. So there's, all, there's still the kind of experience of kind of like, ha not having enough and kind of needing to be creative and work really hard to kind of get there. So there was a, a lot of familiar things about the, the process as well in that respect. And the whole kind of production model on, on District 9 was a lot of kind of, you know, daylight, you know, kind of handheld camcordery kind of stuff that is not entirely unfamiliar to me as someone who's worked on, you know, kind of guerrilla, guerrilla filmmaking. So there's definitely a kind of a guerrilla spirit to a lot of District 9 that you can kind of see why, why it's sort of a different kind of film. I, I definitely feel like I, some of that prepared me in some respects and it wasn't, you know, there was there were similar similarities as well as differences between the two experiences. Yeah, I have one last question that I ask uh, all the editors. What's your favorite guilty pleasure film? <laughs> My favorite guilty pleasure film? Yeah. Well, there's probably a few, but I definitely put Starship Troopers on the list. Yeah, Starship Troopers would be high on the list of guilty pleasure films. Okay. Well, thank you very much for letting me interview a couple yeah. times. That's our show for today. I'd like to thank Julian Clark, the Canadian cinema editors, Paul Weinstock, and my producer, Lauren Woodcock. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.